Did you know that the early church was absolutely hated by the Roman Empire? Because they refused to worship Caesar. So the emperor would send out soldiers throughout the city and the providences demanding Christians deny their faith or be killed. One of those Christians was a man named Polycarp, who on the night he was arrested was 86 years old. And the soldiers came well armed as if he was a dreaded criminal. But when they saw Polycarp, 86-year-old man, they relaxed a little bit, and they agreed to let him pray before taking him. Well, that prayer lasted two hours long and resulted in the soldiers regretting that they arrested him in the first place because he was such a godly man. Nonetheless, Polycarp was taken to the arena where the proconsul tried to persuade him to reject the Christian faith, saying, swear by Caesar's reproach, Christ, and worship the emperor, and I will set you free. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the proconsul continued, I have wild animals, and will not hesitate to feed you to them if you do not repent. And if you despise the animals, then I'll have you burned. Again, Polycarp responded, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. You know nothing of judgment or the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting, proconsul? Bring whatever you please. So the crowd collected the wood. Pyre was ready. Polycarp was put in place. And yet when they went to secure him, he said to them, leave me as I am. For the God who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me the strength not to struggle. So they honored his wishes and they started the fire. And Polycarp looked up to heaven and he started to pray saying, O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among the martyrs today. So a glorious declaration of what he believed his confession of faith, if you will. And then Polycarp asked for mercy and grace in this specific time of need. He said, O oh Lord, may I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed, and now have fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and I bless your beloved son. To him be glory now and forevermore. Amen. Now, do you realize Polycarp was born just five years after the book of Hebrews was written? Just five years. He was taught by the apostle John and died holding fast to his confession while drawing near to the throne of grace where he received mercy and grace to help him in his greatest time of need. And he got it, didn't he? 
Because in Jesus, we have a great high priest who is capable and compassionate, transcendent and tender, and ever lives to intercede on our behalf. Always lives to help us in our time of need. That's where we're going this morning in the book of Hebrews. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. It's on page 1002 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I'd encourage you to have your Bible open and my outline right in the bulletin, the gray sheet in front of you. We're walking right through the text this morning. The title of my sermon is Our Great High Priest. So looking at the reality that Jesus is a transcendent high priest, a tender high priest, and therefore can be a trusted high priest. Now, as you're turning, let me remind you that the author of Hebrews is very systematic in his argument. So in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, he gave us an overview of all the things that he was going to tell us in the entire book. It's a great sermon. Hebrews is a sermon. Here's the intro. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. Then he tells you, and we get to the end, and he tells you what he told you. It's a great sermon. But in chapter 1, 1 to 3, he tells us, That in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. And that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So after making purification of sin as our great high priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God's son and Jesus is our great high priest. So from chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, the author's been arguing that Jesus is God's son. But now he's going to transition. So from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, he's going to argue that Jesus is our great high priest. So Jesus is God's son, and Jesus is our great high priest. And you hear them both in our text this morning. If you would, follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, as we jump in, have you ever wondered to yourself, why in the world did God endure such a long and painful history with the nation of Israel before sending his son into the world to die for our sins? I mean, do you realize the Old Testament makes up 80% of your Bible? So 80% of recorded redemptive history is B.C., before Christ. So here's my question. Why would God do that? Why not send Jesus sooner? Well, certainly one of the answers has to be That when the Son of God comes into the world, there has to be categories in place that make sense to us so we can rightly understand who he is and what he's coming to do. So there needs to be context. There needs to be categories. And just think about that. 
Because if you're clueless about the Old Testament and you try to interpret Jesus in the context of modern day America, so without the Old Testament history, context, or categories, you might make Jesus out to be a personal coach or a mentor or a traveling counselor. And those would be pretty good guesses. But they're not as true and deep, authoritative and helpful as the biblical categories given to us, including that of a great high priest. And Hebrews 5 gives us a glimpse at that. So just look forward. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, for every high priest, so talking about the Old Testament high priest, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act. How does he act? He acts on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So just in one verse, we're given a whole world of context, including the fact that there is a God, that people are sinful, that sin has separated us from God, but God has made a way for us to be reconciled back to him through a high priest who serves as a go-between, representing man to God, offering gifts and sacrifices as a substitute so that God's wrath might be assuaged and the people might be saved, forgiven of their sin, reconciled to God, hope of eternal life. But built into that Old Testament category are inadequacies, right? I mean, look at chapter 5, verse 3. It highlights the fact that the human priest was a sinner himself who had to offer sacrifices for his own sin then the sins of the people. So not only was his sympathy imperfect, his presence before God was limited only on the day of atonement. But it also meant he died. He's not eternal. He died. And he needed to be replaced. So he could never ever guarantee an ongoing presence before God to intercede for his people. But that's the whole point, isn't it? That the Old Testament category was imperfect. It's incomplete. It's totally inadequate. So it must point forward to something greater, someone greater. Well, that's number one. Our transcendent high priest and A, the person of Christ. So if you would, go ahead and look at verse 14 again. The author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, what is the confession that we're called and commanded to hold fast to? Well, it's the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, and the fact that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. So Jesus is the God-man, which are both highlighted in verse 14. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and shadows, specifically the fact that he's our great high priest in the fact that he's the God-man. Who is this Jesus? He's Jesus, the Son of God. So number one, Jesus is humanity. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And he was, in fact, 100% flesh and blood man. So he's born of the Virgin Mary. He's a babe in a manger, grew up to be a young man, matured to adulthood, and was crucified on a cross and died as 
a man. And second, Jesus' divinity. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God. So completely divine. God in the flesh, the creator and sustainer of the world. He is 100% God. Those two things are what enable him to be our transcendent great high priest. Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity. Because he really had to be like us in all ways so that he can stand in our place, serve as our substitute, and represent us as a man. But he also has to be God, the son of God. So he's eternal. So he can stand in the place of every man, woman, and child from creation past until the new creation when Christ returns. So that's the confession that they and we must hold fast to. It's the confession of the historic Jesus and the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In fact, Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Now, do you understand that's the exact message these people are being threatened to reject. So they're on the brink of an all-out blood-shedding persecution that includes people being burned at the stake like Polycarp because they're worshiping Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar. So they're believing in the historic Jesus, 100% man, 100% God who was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was sufficient, and he truly is our great high priest, who be passed through the heavens. So our confidence must be in Christ alone, his person and his work, his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. I want to make sure that we understand this language passed through the heavens because it's just another way to highlight the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus as our great high priest in contrast to the Old Testament priests. Because if you remember from our time in Exodus, the Old Testament priests could only enter the Holy of Holies one time a year. And if you remember, right, The Holy of Holies is a picture of the throne room of God. That's what it's a picture of. That's why you have the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It was designed to look like a footstool. So the whole room was designed to be a picture, an image, a representation of God's throne room. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer sacrifices, first for his sins, then for the sins of the people. And he would always do that with bells on his feet and a rope around his waist. Why? Because sinful people die in the presence of a holy God. But what is the point of all of that? Well, it's to tell us that access was limited. Whereas with the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, he has passed through the heavens which means he's entered the actual presence of God by virtue of his once-for-all sacrifice. So his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his blood shed on our behalf. 
So he's able not only to access God's presence, but to dwell there, to stay there, remain there, ever live there in God's presence for all eternity. Do you see the contrast? Once a year, limited access. Jesus, unlimited access in God's presence for all eternity. So not limited access, not once a year access, not a picture, not a type, not a shadow, but actual access, full access, forever and eternal access to God, which means Jesus is the only way to have full and complete access into God's presence, which is why the author is urging us to hold fast to our confession. Because there's no other way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him and through his sacrificial death on the cross. And of course, the author of Hebrews is going to unpack this more and more as we go. But let me just highlight Hebrews 9.11. The author says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, talking about the tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places. It's the same thing as passing through the heavens. How does he do that? Hebrews 9, 12 unpacks it for us. He says, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by the means of Jesus' own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. So our sinless high priest offers himself as a substitute for our sinful souls. Why does he do that? Because he's not just a transcendent high priest. He's number two, a tender high priest. Look again at verse 15. The author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without Sin. So a tender high priest who's a a sinless high priest who's offered himself as a substitute for our sin. Now, if you look at my outline, you'll see I listed two truths from verse 15. That Jesus was, number one, completely tempted as we are, and yet number two was completely sinless. So here's the questions I want to ask. What distinguishes temptation from sin and did Jesus as the God man really experience temptation like we do meaning could he really have sinned so let's start with the first question what distinguishes temptation from sin well temptation by definition is the enticement towards wickedness but temptation cannot be the same as sin Because verse 15 says, Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So temptation has to be the enticement towards sin, but not sin itself. Now that's not how we typically think about temptation, is it? Because we typically think about temptation in its most graphic form that immediately ends in sin. So the temptation to sin sexually or the temptation 
to judge. Think about judging someone. Do you, are you tempted to judge someone and yet not judge them? Those go together in my mind, right? If I'm tempted to judge them, I'm probably already judging them already. I'm just trying to say on some of these things, temptation and sin are like identical things. It's not temptation. Oh, hold back. Don't judge. I'm tempted to judge you. No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hold back from judging you. Right? So we put those things together so often. Temptation to judge. Temptation to steal. Well, that's different. You can think, I should take that. No, I can't take that. Temptation to cheat. Temptation to lash out in anger. For some of them, for some of us, that's a temptation we can resist. Others of us just go right to anger. Now think about this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, that temptation included food when fasting. So the Bible highlights that temptation can take the most wicked of forms and it can take the most basic of forms, but either way, temptation is not sin. Now, temptation can certainly lead to sin, but it's not sin. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, does that mean that a man commits adultery in his heart every time he sees an attractive woman? Well, the answer has to be no. Because Jesus is not calling men to stop looking at women. He's calling them to stop looking at women with lustful intent. So he's commanding them to fight against the temptation to turn attraction into lust. So when a man crosses the line from attraction to lust, he's giving permission to his temptation to manifest itself in full-blown sin. So even if he never moves forward in any kind of physical way, either way, he's committed adultery in his heart. Now, all of that is necessary to know because verse 15 says Jesus was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, as a man, felt all the same temptations that we do. Felt all the same pulls on his heart to sin, to look, to touch, to take, to taste, and to do whatever is wrong and wicked and contrary to his Father's will. And yet he never crossed the line. So he was, he was tempted in every respect as we are, but never once permitted that temptation to become sin in his heart. So we see the tenderness of our Savior. That he didn't just hear how difficult our life is. He experienced it. He walked our road. And he felt our pain. So Jesus doesn't just come to relieve us of our trouble like a doctor, distant, prescribing medicine. Instead, he's with us in the troubles like a doctor who's endured the same disease. And yet he does so without sin. Now, let me just push this a little bit further by asking my second question. Did Jesus really experience temptation like we do? I mean, if he really is 100% God, is his temptation really the same as our temptation? Meaning, could Jesus 
have sinned? Was that really a possibility? Because if he couldn't, then can he really sympathize with our temptation? Well, look again at verse 15. Because that's the whole point the author is making. Right? He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but instead one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. So tempted in the exact same ways, tempted in the same areas, same extent, same levels, same categories that we are every single day. And yet, without sin. You know, C.S. Lewis imagined a person asking the question this way. If Jesus never sinned, then how could he possibly know what our temptation is like? To which Lewis responded with an illustration, telling a story about a man who was walking against the wind. So when the wind is mild, right, low-level wind, there's really no problem at all. But when the winds of temptation start building up, start getting stronger like a terrible storm. What does the man do? Well, he lies down and he gives in. Which means he doesn't really know what it would have been like 10 minutes later when the winds were even stronger, when the temptation was even harder. Well, here's the glory of the Lord Jesus. Jesus never laid down. Which means he's endured greater temptations than we ever have without giving in. So he knows the full weight, full force, full attraction, allurement, deception, and draw of temptation. Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. So he really was tempted to dishonor his parents when they were more strict than others. He really was tempted to steal, to help out his mom when his father died. Tempted to covet Zacchaeus' stuff. Tempted to lust after Mary when she wiped his feet with her hair. Tempted to be proud when he stumped his accusers. Tempted to grumble when John the Baptist died. Tempted to be frustrated when his disciples fell asleep rather than praying. Tempted to lie to save his life. Tempted to take revenge when he was wrongly accused. And tempted to be angry when he was slapped, spit on, and crucified. My point is that Jesus knows the battle against temptation better than any of us could ever know it because he endured it all. And he resisted it all. So it was real temptation, which means Jesus really could have sinned, but he didn't. Jesus didn't sin. So A, Jesus is our sinless high priest. And please make the connection, because it's actually the fact that Jesus really was tempted and Jesus really could have sinned that makes Jesus qualified to be B, our sympathetic high priest. I mean, just think about it for a second. How do you feel when you're going through a really hard time in life? 
And you're sitting down with a person who's never, ever gone through anything remotely close to what you're enduring. And yet says to you, I totally understand. I mean, what if you lost your job? Or you're struggling financially to make ends meet. So you're going through credit card debt. You can't pay your bills. And they're looking at foreclosing your house. And you're talking to someone who's independently wealthy, never had a care in the world, never had a struggle whatsoever. And they say to you, I totally understand. How would that make you feel? Or maybe you just got the news that you've got a medical condition. Or there's something terribly wrong with you. And you're talking to a person who's in perfect health, goes to the gym three times a week, runs three miles just to warm up before they run a marathon. Every other week, because it's fun. They like running. They do push-ups and sit-ups. They work out. They count their calories. They're in great shape. And you just got news that something is terribly wrong with you. And they say to you, I totally understand. How would that make you feel? Do you hear what I'm saying? The whole fact that Jesus was tempted exactly as we are. So tempted in the same ways, the same areas, the same categories, to the same level, the same extent as we are every day. So he really does know the full weight, full force, full attraction and allurement, deception and the draw of our temptation. That reality is actually what enables him to be sympathetic to our struggle against sin. And yet he has to be without sin in order to be our great high priest. Because if Jesus had sinned, even gave into temptation one time, one wrong word, one wicked action, one judgmental attitude, even just one temptation that led him to sin, then his atonement on the cross would not be sufficient. He would not be qualified anymore to pay God's wrath against our sin. Does that make sense to you? Can you hold those two things together? Jesus had to be tempted as we are in all things and yet be without sin. So his death might be an adequate substitute for our sin. So we must hold fast to him as our confession that Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is our great high priest. And because he is, we can draw near to the throne of God with full confidence that we're not only invited, but we're welcomed and we're encouraged to come to draw near to God through Christ's finished work on the cross. And when we do, we are promised that we will find mercy and grace to help in every single trial 
and tribulation. Every single temptation that you struggle with in this life. Jesus is capable and compassionate. So he's not just our transcendent high priest and our tender high priest. He is number three, our trusted high priest. If you would allow me to read all three verses again, verses 14 to 16. The author says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, or, or therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Two clear commands which are absolutely essential to persevering in the Christian faith, especially in the midst of difficulty, especially in the midst of persecution. So A, we must hold fast to our confession because we have no hope apart from Jesus. That's the whole point of verses 14 and 15, that Jesus is the God-man, that he passed through the heavens, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sinner's death so we can draw near to the throne of grace and not to a throne of judgment. So we have absolutely no other hope besides Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus, our great high priest, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, was tempted as we are, and yet is completely without sin, which enables him to be a perfect sacrifice for our sin when he died on the cross. We have to hold fast to that confession because that's really the only way to draw near with confidence Tom Schreiner says it this way in his commentary believers can boldly approach God's throne with joyful confidence because of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice those two ideas are inextricably linked, Schreiner says. In fact, the greater you hold to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the more boldly, the more joyfully, and the more confidently you'll be to draw near to God's throne and be welcomed into God's presence. Now and forevermore. But let's pause just to think about God's throne for a moment. The only one permitted to draw near to God's throne in the Old Testament was the high priest. And that was once a year on the Day of Atonement. And if his ministry and his life was acceptable, then his sacrifice was received. Sin was atoned for, judgment was appeased, and God's mercy was dispensed on the people of Israel. But if it wasn't, if his ministry wasn't acceptable, if his life was not acceptable, then he didn't receive mercy and grace he received judgment see the glory of this passage is that on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross his atonement for sin his sacrifice for salvation his death for our life God's throne is a throne of immeasurable grace lavished grace grace upon grace so Christians are invited they're welcomed 
They're encouraged to come and find mercy and grace to help in every and all times of need. So even in our weakness, even in our failures, even in our sin, we can boldly approach God's throne with great confidence, receive pardon and forgiveness, aid and assistance, and the help that we need to move on regardless of the trial. Because God has fully, finally, and forever paid for our sin in and through the Lord Jesus, who is our transcendent, tender, and trusted great high priest. However, if you stand outside of faith in Christ, or you're tempted to reject Christ, or to not hold fast to your confession in Christ, then God's throne is no longer a throne of grace, it's a throne of judgment. And the reason for that is because you no longer have a transcendent, tender, and trusted great high priest who has gone through the heavens and offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins. Which means you now stand alone with no great high priest. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. The author had just told us that we will all stand naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The writer of Hebrews says there is a judgment coming. The writer of Hebrews says first comes death, then comes the judgment. You stand with Christ, you have a great high priest. You come before a throne of grace. You have no great high priest. You stand alone before a throne of judgment because you have no intercessor, no mediator, no great high priest standing there to appeal his sacrifice, his death on the cross for your sins. So you'll have to do that yourself which means God's throne for you is a throne of wrath. It's a throne of judgment. I tell you that because I care for you so that you run to Jesus, the Son of God, and make him your great high priest. I appeal to you, I plead with you to put your faith in Jesus, to hold fast to your confession and to embrace him as your great high priest because when you do, righteous judgment immediately is replaced with radical grace. Grace upon grace, lavished grace, infinite grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all your Sin. Because the throne of judgment becomes a throne of grace. A place where you're invited, welcomed, and encouraged to come with total confidence. And when you come, you'll find God's grace, God's mercy, and God's help this day and every day. Dear believer, do you realize these verses are some of the most comforting in all of the Bible? 
Because Christians, just like everyone else in this world, suffer from all sorts of trials and temptations, difficulties and discomforts. Do you know that this morning? I'm assuming you do. You don't need me to tell you that you have trials and tribulations, discomforts and difficulty in your life. You know that, I'm assuming. We have the same difficulties as everyone else in this world. And we, just like them, can easily run to agony and despair. And we can start asking questions like this. Does God even care? Does he know what I'm dealing with? And if he does, why doesn't he fix it? Can he really do anything to help me in my time of need? Haven't you been in situations where you think to yourself, no one understands? No one gets how I feel. No one understands what I'm going through. I'm here to tell you this morning, you couldn't be more wrong when you think that to yourself. Jesus uniquely understands. Jesus uniquely sympathizes like no one ever could because he's been tempted in every way just as you are. So he knows what you're going through. And he's here for you. You have a great high priest who has experienced the full reign of temptations and trials, difficulties and discomforts that you're going through right now in your life today. So there's no temptation that's foreign to his experience, which means he can relate to your situation. He can sympathize with your weakness because he's been there, he's done that, and he knows what it's like. You can't say that your God doesn't know what it's like. Because he does. Because he dwelt among us. And yet his humanity did not include failure, weakness, and sin. Because if it did, he couldn't extend grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, and actually help you in your time of greatest need. In the Lord Jesus, we have a great high priest who is capable and compassionate, transcendent and tender, who can absolutely be trusted, Jesus, the Son of God, who knows and cares about your life, who passed through the heavens and stands in God's presence this day, every day, until the final day, because he atoned for your sin, and he ever lives to intercede on your behalf. So you can come. You're invited to come. You're welcomed to come. You're beckoned to come. And you're free and able to come before God's throne and stand in God's presence and ask him for mercy and for grace to help in your time of need. So here's the question. What do you need? What do you need, dear believer, today? What is your greatest need? I want you to just have a pencil or pen in your paper, in your hand, with your notes. 
And I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. And you just write a check mark for every one of these that you need. I think we're a needy people. And he welcomes us to come. And yet we don't come. So then we talk to other people who don't really understand and can't really help us. But we don't go to him. So here's a list of questions. And you just put a little mark down for everyone that you say, that's me. What is your greatest need? Is it energy to make it through the day? Is it health for a broken body? Is it wisdom to handle a difficult situation? Is it grace to engage a person who for you is hard to navigate? Is it God's kindness just to allow something to go well? Is it God's grace to forgive you of a specific sin that you just can't seem to shake? Is it God's grace to allow you to forgive yourself or to forgive somebody else? Is it God's mercy to empower you to do all the things that you know he's calling and commanding you to do? Is it joy to make the most of a bad situation? Is it God's help to love the unlovely, to serve the needy, to move towards people rather than away from people, to have a softer heart, to flee temptation, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted, or to just live with joy and happiness because you keep the gospel central in your life. Dear believer, what is your greatest need? And do you understand that we are welcomed into the very presence of God this day, every day, until the final day, because of the finished work of our great high priest, you have total access to all the mercy and grace and help that you need, not only to make it through today, but to make it through this life, to make it safely home to heaven. So what should we do? Two things. We should hold fast to Jesus. And we should draw near to God. 
just like Polycarp. He said to the proconsul, Leave me as I am, for the God who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength not to struggle. Then he looked up to heaven and he prayed. And he asked God for mercy and grace to help with today's greatest need. Do you recognize that Polycarp prayed every day, confessed his faith, and asked God for mercy and grace to help in time of need? This day, it just meant enduring persecution and death for his faith. But every other day before that, for 86 years, he came before God and said, hey, can you help me? I need mercy and grace and time and help to navigate today's greatest need. Let us hold fast to Jesus and let us draw near to the throne of grace where we will receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Allow me to pray. Lord, we need to be reminded. Oh, we need to be reminded. We are so prone to run to other places for help. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a transcendent high priest and a tender high priest that is our trusted high priest. And if we can just recognize that we are in daily need, and as a result of that daily need, we should run, not to the internet, not to other people, not to other solutions, not to ourself, but to you, where we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, give us grace to believe in the Lord Jesus, to hold fast to our confession and draw near to our God. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.